Good morning. Be reading from Isaiah fifty-two thirteen through Isaiah fifty-three twelve. Isaiah wrote, "See, my servant will be successful, and he will be raised and lifted up, and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man." And his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For they will see what had not been told them. And they will understand what they had not heard. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet, he himself bore our sicknesses. And he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death, because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet, the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many, and interceded for the rebels. I invite you to open your Bibles once again, this time to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be looking at Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5, 25. 
We're going to talk about how Christ gave Himself for His bride. We've been talking, uh, beginning with last week, about the love of Christ. And that's what we want to continue. That's what Paul does here, is he gives us this pattern to follow, the love of Christ, when he tells us husbands to love our wives and, and for all of us to love one another. So, we're going to talk about Christ giving Himself for His bride, Ephesians 5.25. So, before we go into more detail about how New Covenant husbands are to love their wives, we need to take some time to examine and ponder the pattern for our love. The pattern for the love that we husbands are to have toward our wives and our families and the love that we are to teach them to have between all of us, one another. We're going to see as we look at the love of Christ for His church. That's the pattern, the love of Christ for His church. We're going to see that this is indeed a stunning love. Christ's love started long ago. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.20, before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world. So what we're going to be talking about, this love of Christ, it isn't something that happened somewhere within human history and He felt pity on us, and then decided to come and rescue us. No, before He even created the world, we find His love already starting. God determined then that He would deliver His Son. And Peter, again, in Acts 2, talks about how He's going to deliver His Son according to the predetermined plan of God, His predetermined plan. And that predetermined plan was that Jesus would die on the cross. He'd be nailed to a cross, Peter says. We saw back in Ephesians 2.12 that God revealed this plan through what Paul calls the covenants of promise. The covenants of promise. The first promise, first time this promise shows up is in Genesis 3.15. We find there where God promising the woman in the midst of His curse to the man and the woman and even the serpent, he, He promises the woman that through her would come a seed. And that seed would give victory over sin and Satan. But then God expanded on that promise. That was just really uh, a tiny bit of detail. He gives more in the Abrahamic covenant. When He tells Abraham, makes this promise to him in Genesis, in chapters 12, 15, 22, He tells, promises him that in Abraham's seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. But the seed that He's talking about there is not as we sometimes might think that all of these, you know, descendants of Abraham, but Paul tells us in Galatians 3.16 and following that there's one particular seed that God had in mind when He gave that promise. Now, there's a sense in which, yes, many will, from all the nations, will be blessed in Him, but there's one particular seed through whom all of that will come. God then gave even more detail in His covenant with David. These are all part of the covenants of promise, okay? And and these are set in opposition because they are the promise. They're set in opposition to the law, okay? And, And Paul brings that out even in Galatians as well. With His covenant to David, the Lord revealed that Messiah, the seed of Abraham will come from David's line. 
So he'll be from that specific family. And like David, he will be king. But unlike David, he will be also our high priest. And we have there 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 110, especially with him being king and high priest. And then later through the prophets, the Lord revealed something quite astonishing. He revealed the transforming, redeeming power of this promise that He had made. It's going to be something very different from the law. The law did not have the power to change anyone. And the writers of Scripture make clear that. The law could not do these things, but what the law could not do, God would do, and it would be through what are the covenants of promise, but now all of that is pulled together in the prophets and called the New Covenant. And then, of course, we find that. That's why we have the New Testament. It's the New Covenant. And and Jesus talking about the New Covenant, and so will the apostles. But Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 are the two main passages on this new covenant. And they talk about how the law is going to be in our hearts and how uh, He's going to change us. He's going to give us a new heart. and He's going to give us His Spirit. And His Spirit will cause us to obey. And, and Whereas the, the law never could do that. It could just punish you for not obeying. Well, how did this new covenant come about? Well, it came through the loving ministry of Messiah. One who we saw when Stephen read for us Isaiah 52.13 through 53.12. It's called the servant song or the, the servant song, the servant of Yahweh. So Messiah is sometimes, he's, he has a lot of different names in Scripture. And one of those is the servant of Yahweh. It is through his love that we see exhibited there in Isaiah 53 where we see more of that transforming power of that new covenant and how through the Messiah and through His death, He would redeem His people. That's a very deeply stirring picture of our Savior's love for us. And I hope that when you read it, you you read it from the astonishment of an Old Testament saint, like, this, wow. Okay, there's somebody coming who's going to do that. He's going to die in our place. But then also read it as a New Testament saint, looking back and say, that, that's my Jesus. He is the one who fulfilled that as, as He inaugurated with His blood this new covenant. The servant then, the Savior, is Jesus. He's Jesus the Christ. Christ means Messiah, just the Greek word for Messiah. He fulfilled the covenants of promise when He sealed that new covenant in His blood. He sacrificed Himself for those whom He loved. He sacrificed Himself for us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, He sacrificed Himself for you. So what we learn from Him here particularly in Ephesians 5.25. And then we're going to look at other passages like we did with Isaiah 53. We're going to learn this, that Christ-like love, Christ-like love sacrificially gives itself to meet the needs of those loved. Christ-like love sacrificially gives itself to meet the needs 
of those loved. And so we can say that Jesus' love is a self-sacrificing love. And remember, men, where we're going to be going with this is this is the kind of love you're to have toward your wives. And wives, you're going to need to learn that as well as your husband ex- exemplifies it and teaches it in your home for you and your children. And we're all to have that kind of love for one another. Christ-like love sacrificially gives itself to meet the needs of those loved. So let's look here again at the passage, Ephesians 5. I want to back up to verse 22 for the context. Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. The background to what he's talking about here as Paul launches into this discussion of Christ and his love as the pattern for us in our homes and in our churches is that that of Christ and his bride, Christ and his bride, Christ himself, Jesus himself called, referred to himself as the bridegroom. You think about in the Gospels, he referred to himself as the bridegroom. Then Paul would develop this theme a little bit further, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says of the church in verse 2, For I betrothed you to one husband, that in Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. So there's that idea of Christ and His church being, and this, this church being betrothed to Christ. Then the Apostle John gives us a vision of the church in the future as he, he shows us there in, in Revelation 19, and in verse in chapter 21 when he talks about the marriage supper of the lamb so in that in the ancient times they would they have they would have like us a an engagement or betrothal period and then there was a time where they would present the 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 bride and uh, but then at the marriage supper is when they were officially joined and as husband and wife. And so John looks forward to that marriage supper of the Lamb. And so what he's saying is that Christ loved His bride enough to die for her. Think about human marriage. Our human marriages, marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman before God. It's a covenant in which they make promises to each other that they intend to keep. Likewise, Jesus inaugurated the new covenant with his bride. But as we learned recently in adult Sunday school, uh, Jared taught us from Genesis 15, this, the Abrahamic covenant, or now the new covenant, it's a unilateral covenant. It's one-sided because Jesus did everything. You see, he had to do everything. 
It has to be unilateral. And bilateral would be like the law of Moses. It's where God says, I'll do this, I'll bless you, but you have to obey. And so if they obey, then they get blessed. Okay, the new covenant is not like that at all. Jeremiah 31, uh, Hebrews 8, they both say the new covenant is, quote, not like the old. Okay, the new covenant is unilateral. There's, it's one-sided. Okay, just like a, a unicycle or something, one. You see, we, the church, the bride of Christ, could never keep our side of the covenant. It's not possible for us to keep it in our own power. So, in a sense, Jesus had to keep it for us through His righteous life. And then His righteousness He gives to His bride. You know, so there's a sense in which, you know, her her wedding dress is His righteousness. And then she'll wear that. In a sense, we will be, and if we are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are clothed right now with the righteousness of Christ. But you see, we, His bride, could not keep our side of the covenant. He had to do that for us. So He gave us His righteousness. He kept that side for us. But, on top of that, we fail. We have sinned against Him. We continue to sin against Him. We, we fail in keeping our side of the covenant. And so it's not only enough for Him to give us His righteousness, that, okay, I've done that, your side for you, but He has to die to pay for our failings. You see how that goes? I mean, this is incredible. So we as His bride are joined by Him or to Him by covenant. But it's a covenant where He had to do everything. He had to do our side for us and He had to die for us failing. What, what love is this? So here in Ephesians 5.25, Paul said that Christ loved the church. How did He love her? Well, Paul tells us. He says He gave Himself up for her. You want to know how did He love her? By giving Himself up for her. He proved His love that way. The essence of Christ's love, the essence of godly love, the essence of agape love involves giving to meet the needs of those loved. Giving. So if you want a one-word definition for agape, it is giving. Fill that out a little bit. Why? Why give? For the needs of the one loved. Think about, most of you probably know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave. He gave His Son. Galatians 2.20, some of you have memorized that too. Paul talked about the Son of God who loved me... And what? He delivered Himself up for me. Gave Himself for me. You have there the ideas of giving and sacrifice. Because that's how He gave. By sacrificing His life. You know, you may wonder, you know, does Christ love me? Does He love me? Well, if, you're, if you put your trust in Him... The answer is, He proved His love for you by giving Himself in death. He proved His love by giving Himself in death. 
John tells us in his first letter, 1 John 3.16, We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. And so, if you're someone who struggles with, you know, does Christ love me? You should memorize that, 1 John 3.16. Okay? And remember that He loved me and delivered Himself up for me, as Paul would say. He laid down His life for us. This word for he gave himself up, he gave up, uh, it means to to hand someone over or to give over. It was used in the Gospels for when Pilate, Pontius Pilate, he gave Jesus over to be crucified. He handed him over to be crucified. But Jesus said, well, yes, that would be true, I had already given myself to death. Jesus promised that when he said he told his disciples in John 10 that he would lay his life down. He gave himself over to death first. Pilate couldn't have done it if Jesus hadn't already given himself over because he was far more powerful than Pilate. But he gave himself over first. What did he lay his life down for? Well, Paul tells us here in Ephesians 5.25, He loved the church and gave himself up for her. Those two words ought to mean a lot to you because that's you. For her. The bride of Christ. The body of Christ. For her. Yes, it's for his glory, but it's not just for his glory. It is for her. He gave Himself for her. The church is the object of Christ's love. And we could say it this way, He who is the object of our faith, Jesus, He who is the object of our faith has made us the object of His love. Isn't that beautiful? He who is the object of our faith, we put our faith in Him, He has made us the object of His love. And it's just so beautiful to think that He would do that. That He sets His love on us. He has set His love on us. Even before He created us, even knowing everything that we were going to do and every way in which we were going to fail, He set His love on us. And this was before everything. And it's incredible. I I have a hard time really grasping that the level and the depth of that love. When I think about, okay, Jesus, before you ever created the world, you knew me, you you knew you were going to create me, and you knew everything that I would do to fail, to sin, to transgress, to disobey, to rebel against you, Lord Jesus. And He knows all the stuff that I'm going to do from this moment forward. And because, and even in spite of all of that, He set His love on me. If you're a believer, He set His love on you too. He set His love on us, the church, His bride. He died for her, for His church. He died for the sake of His beloved. And some, some people think that Paul may have been meditating on Isaiah 53 when he wrote this. And and whether he was or not, we're not sure, but certainly he had thought a lot 
about Isaiah 53. He knew the Old Testament Scriptures very well. And that passage definitely contributed in a, in a large part to his understanding, his theology about Christ's sacrificial love. So, uh, turn over there with me, Isaiah 53, once again, where we were just a little bit ago. And I want to read just a few verses this time. Stephen took us through the whole servant song, but we'll just look at a few verses. And I want you to watch as I read for this idea of for her. Now, it doesn't say her because, remember, the church had not been revealed yet. And that didn't come until the New Testament because it was a mystery back then. There it is just for us, for our, right? So listen as I read a few verses here. Isaiah 53. I want to read verses 4 through 6. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on Him. And by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. We call this doctrine the substitutionary atonement of Christ. It's a a precious doctrine for believers. Um, I know there's kind of big words if you're not used to them. Substitutionary and atonement. But they're beautiful words because of what they signify. And just very simply, what that doctrine means is that Jesus died in our place to pay for our sins. That's that's what it means. He died in our place. We were the ones that were meant to die. We were the ones worthy of death. We were the ones who had sinned against Him, our triune God, in all of their holiness. We had sinned against Him, but He died in our place. He was our substitute. He atoned or propitiated. He paid for our sins and He satisfied the wrath of God. We just sang that just a little bit ago. The wrath of God what? Do you remember the rest of the song? The wrath of God completely satisfied, right? That's this. He died in our place and He satisfied God's wrath because of our sin. I want to look at a few New Testament passages to see, learn a little bit more what we can about this, the depth of Christ's love. So, turn it, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of First John. So we're going to go way back toward the back, <clears throat> almost to Revelation. First John four, beautiful passage about God's love. First thing, Jesus initiated love for His church. He initiated love for His church. He didn't wait for us to to reach out in love toward Him because that was never going to happen. He initiated love for His church. 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son 
to be the propitiation. There's that word again I used, the, the satisfactory payment for our sins. That's love. He initiated that love. It wasn't that we loved God, but that He loved us and He sent His Son to die for us. And His Son, in love, gave Himself willingly. Jesus said in in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 18, No one has taken it away from me, talking about His life, but I lay it down on my own initiative. He saw our need in eternity past, remember, and He gave Himself to meet that need. He was moved to act. And God had this plan to redeem a people for Christ. So He initiated his, the, this love. Second, Jesus' love for us is the same love the Father has for Jesus. It's the same love. You see, so we're, we're talking about the pattern here. The love that husbands are to have for their wives is the love that Jesus had for His church, and that's the love that the Father had for Jesus. So, for example, in John fifteen nine, He says, Jesus says, "...just as the Father has loved Me, I have also loved you." So divine love is the pattern. We don't, we don't look at, you know, some kind of heartfelt, touching stories of love out there in the world between people. The pattern is God's love. It's divine love. It's that kind of love that we are to follow as our pattern. It is unique in this world. And that's why I've been saying all along that these things, in these things we need to be distinctly Christian. You see, because it, we're patterning ourselves after Christ and His love. Third, Jesus' love for us is eternally secure. Turn over now to back to the left at Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, another beautiful passage about the love of Christ. And I'll read part of that here. <clears throat> Jesus' love for us is eternally secure. Romans 8.35 I hope you all recognize and you have this at least marked in your brains that I need to read this passage a lot. I need to remember the love of Christ. For he says, Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And then drop down to verse 38. And here's his answer. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, and if he missed anything, nor any other created thing, which is everything besides God, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing else can separate us from the love of Christ. It is eternally secure. And the beauty of that is that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, even your sin can't separate you from the love of Christ. Now, that we're not saying that some people do, that it, then it's okay to sin. No, not at all. Because we're going to talk about more next time, but touch on it just a little bit here. In verses 26 and 27 of Ephesians 5, he's going to talk about how he deals with his bride's sins. So He's not going to leave us in our sins. He will deal with them. 
but His love is eternally secure. Puritan Stephen Charnock affirmed that there are no charms in sin that may not be overcome. <clears throat> so there's nothing so great in some, some, the way that sin tempts us. There's none of those that are, that are too tempting. He says that they may not be overcome by that ravishing love. This is so beautiful. Which bubbles up in every drop of the Redeemer's blood. Isn't that just beautiful? It, <clears throat> The ravishing love, this love of Christ, which bubbles up in every drop of the Redeemer's blood. So, Jesus initiated His love. His love is the same love that the Father has for Him. His love is eternally secure. And then one more. Jesus loved us even though we were unworthy and unlovely. He loved us even though we were unworthy and unlovely. If you're still in Romans, turn back a few chapters to chapter 5. We sang about this too. Romans 5, and I'm just going to read a few verses. Verse 6. While we were so wonderful. Did it say that? While we were so deserving, while we were such great options for God's team, no. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Okay, helpless doesn't sound too bad. Look at verse 8. But God demonstrates what? His own love toward us and that while we were yet, we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, He didn't wait till we cleaned up our act first because we would never do that. We couldn't do that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What love. Then verse 10. <clears throat> It gets a little worse. For if while we were enemies, and that's what we sang about, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. <clears throat> Helpless, sinners, enemies. And if you go look at the... the First five chapters of Romans, you you get an even more filled out picture. Uh, I I thought about bringing it today. I had done. Uh, I came across it. I was cleaning out my files and stuff, and something I had done for a, a friend in seminary, and you know he believed that we have the ability to to believe in Christ even before God you know does anything to us uh, to make us um, give us new life. So I just went through Romans 1 through 5, and I had this big, big, long list. And, of course, these three were on it, but there were a whole bunch more. So if, you're, if you wonder, you think, okay, you know, yeah, there's, there's a lot about me that's pretty good. And, you know, we'll go read Romans 1 through 5 and just make your own little list. and You'll see that's not true. I just read a, a new book by Eric Raymond uh, called He Is Not Ashamed. <clears throat> and I love the subtitle. 
He is not ashamed. The staggering love of Christ for His people. Isn't that beautiful? The staggering love of Christ for His people. And this book, for those of you... For those of us who know that we're unworthy of His love and are sometimes bothered too much by that and think, because sometimes we do, we think, Lord, You know me better than I know me. I just don't see how You can love me. Is that really possible as bad as I am? This is a soothing salve from Scripture. He takes us through Old and New Testament passages. And his point in the book is this. He says that, and he shows this through the book, Jesus comes from people with embarrassing stories. And you, can, you, know, you know some of Jesus', Jesus lineage. I can't say it. What am I trying to say? Lineage, thank you. And... There are plenty of people, you know, David and others, that just, you really wouldn't want them in your family tree if you could help it. But he said Jesus came from people with embarrassing stories and he also comes for them. That's us. He comes for us. For her. For his bride. And his table of contents alone It was just beautiful. The first time I read it, I was blown away by it. It expresses Jesus' tender love. He says there in... You just read chapter by chapter, talking about Jesus. He is not ashamed of those with embarrassing stories, of those who opposed Him, of those who are overlooked, of those who were far from God, of those who have nothing, of those who are weak, of those who still sin. So if you wrestle with these ideas of your unworthiness, and we all need to understand and grasp that, but if it troubles you, this is a a, a good book to read. Well, so this last point, I want to restate it this way. The most unworthy are pursued by the most worthy. Isn't that beautiful? The, The most unworthy, us, you and me are pursued by the most worthy, Jesus. Jesus gave Himself in death so He could give life to those most worthy of death. He gave Himself in death so He could give life to those most worthy of death. We in the church are not lovable. But Jesus isn't going to leave us that way. He loves us too much to leave us in our sins. He's in the process of making us, as His bride, lovable by dealing with our sins. And I want to read the last two verses I referred to earlier. Ephesians 5, and verses 26 and 27. So I stopped right before that because I want to read them now. And we haven't talked about it. We're going to talk about those, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks. 
Christ gave himself up for her. Why? Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. That is where he's taking us. That is where we all will be. Even though you wrestle with your sins now, and there's there's sin that you're, it, it still gets the best of you, and you're you're still trying to put it to death. But one day, you, if you're part of the bride of Christ, you we will not have any spot or wrinkle, anything like that. Why? Because of the love of our bridegroom, the love of our Savior, the one who gave Himself to die for us. And so, our character does matter. And in the here and now, we must work to become like Christ. To become like Christ in our character in particular, in the way we love. As we think about the Lord's table... I want us to behold the staggering love of our Savior. Behold the staggering love of our Savior. That's what we've been talking about here. From Isaiah 53 all the way here through the New Testament, the staggering love of our Savior. Remember, He made a covenant with us, His bride. But He gave us His righteousness because we couldn't keep our side of the covenant. And because we have failed over and over again in trying to keep our side of the covenant, He had to die to pay for our failures. Oh, what love. What love. 